Thank you all. Appreciate that. Good morning, everyone. For those who may not know, who may be visiting with us this morning, I'd like to extend a special welcome to you. Uh, my name is Will Peterson. I am currently serving here on a temporary basis as an assistant pastor while my family plans and prays to plant a church, Lord willing, this September up in the Estero area. So welcome to you all if you are new here. Our pastor Justin is on sabbatical and he'll be back in a few weeks with us. Uh, Because Pastor Justin finished the Gospel of John, I thought it would be okay if I went to a Gospel this morning. So hopefully that's the case. I want to ask you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10 this morning as we continue thinking about the mercy of God. I want us to see that very same mercy in our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. As you're turning there, let me also just say thank you to you all. Uh, You have, in these last five months or so since we've been here, just been so tremendously uh, hospitable to us, generous to us, encouraging to us. It's, It's really warmed our hearts and fed our souls well. So thank you for your love for us. It's been, it's been such a joy to be here. I want to also say thank you to the church body for, and the elders as well for giving Pastor Justin and his family a sabbatical away. I've had the privilege to be able to serve as both an associate pastor and a senior pastor. And as you know, pastors carry a certain burden. It's just the way that life goes in ministry. When I became a senior pastor, one of the things that surprised me most was how much that burden increased I don't know what it is. I think it's just the reality that now you're kind of, even though you're in a plurality of elders, sort of the buck stops with you. And so as a former senior pastor, now aspiring church planter slash senior pastor, whatever position I'm in now, thank you. You, I think some of you do know, uh, but it means the world to a man in Justin's position and to his family as well, probably more so than to him, to be able to have this time away. So continue to pray for them and, and uh, of course, welcome them with loving arms, as I'm, I'm sure we all will. We're excited to have them back soon with us. Well, as I mentioned this morning, I want to turn our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ the King of Mercy. And I want to do that in Mark chapter 10. And I want you to look with me this morning at verses 46 to 52. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52, the healing of a blind man named Bartimaeus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. Only Mark gives us the name of the man that was healed, which is a significant, I think, point It tells us about how precious this story is. And I think it tells us also that most likely Bartimaeus was in the church or at least known to the church as Mark writes this gospel. Would you please follow along as I read Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. 
And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. It was December 20th in 1943 when the American pilot, Second Lieutenant, Lieutenant, Second Lieutenant Charlie Brown, true story, that was really his name. Second Lieutenant Charlie Brown was flying his B-17 bomber along with his crew in a squadron who was heading to in the middle of enemy territory to, uh, in hopes to annihilate a German war factory that was producing massive amounts of ammunition in order to fuel the German efforts in World War II. Everyone on the mission knew that this was a dangerous mission. Of course, anytime you fly into enemy territory, It's dangerous, but this particular facility was being guarded by no less than 250 anti-aircraft cannons. It was an important factory. Early into the flight, there were some complications with a few of the planes, which meant some of them had to peel back, and Lieutenant Brown's plane took the lead. If you know anything about combat, even just from watching a movie, you know that the first person in is usually the one who takes fire first. As they approached their targets, they readied themselves, they prepared themselves, and as they were moving in to begin to unload their bombs on that war factory, the anti-aircraft cannons began to go off. And it was not long before Lieutenant Brown's plane had several massive holes ripped into it with one of his crew being dead right away. Somehow, by God's grace, Lieutenant Brown's plane, along with the other planes who survived that attack, unloaded their bombs and flew on. But Lieutenant Brown's plane was damaged so severely that he could not keep up with the rest of the squadron. And so as they flew away, his plane lagged back. Making him, of course, an easy target for the German fighters who soon got into the air and chased him down and themselves began to unload fury on that one plane, blasting it once more with holes the size of your head and even bigger. Somehow, still, the plane stayed in the air, though it was badly damaged. By this time, it had lost one of its four engines, and two other of its four engines were badly damaged, so much so that the German fighters decided to peel back and go back to their air base because they were certain that Lieutenant Brown's plane was going to meet its demise. However, it kept going. It kept going in the air, and actually one of the instruments that was damaged was the compass that he would use to navigate, and so Lieutenant Brown was just really hoping that he was flying in the right direction, trying to desperately get back to Allied airspace. However, what he did not know was that he would soon fly over yet another German airfield, And on that particular airfield was stationed a man named Franz Stigler, who had already shot down 27 American planes so far. 
They were so confident in Stigler's ability in the air that he and he alone was the only one who was sent up in the air to get rid of this one American plane that slowly made its way through the air, trying desperately to survive. As Stigler got closer and closer to the plane, there were holes so large that he could actually see inside of the plane. And when he looked inside of the plane, he saw a crew, what was left of a crew, desperately scrambling to just do anything they could to try to live. And his heart went out to this crew. Having shot down already 27 aircrafts, a highly decorated fighter pilot, the German Franz Stigler, instead of making this his 28th kill, when he looked upon those Americans, had mercy. And so rather than shoot them down, Stigler did his best to motion to Lieutenant Brown, who was flying the plane, to follow him into safe airspace so that he could get the care that he needed. But of course, the American had no idea what the German was trying to do. And so rather than abandon the Americans and let them go off to wherever it was they were heading, Franz Stigler pulled up alongside of them in formation in order to make sure that no other Germans would shoot down the American plane. And he safely escorted them over to the North Sea so that they could fly back into British airspace and get the care that they needed. But before he let them go over the sea back to safe space, he did the one thing that in the military is the highest honor you can give. The German saluted the American. The Americans flew back, landed safely, and only one of the crew lost their lives. That moment, of course, stuck with Lieutenant Brown so significantly that in 1990, some 47 years later, he wrote a letter to a, uh, a pilot's air, uh, magazine that was circulated in hopes that he could try to find that merciful German who let him go that day. As it just so happened, the German answered that letter that was written. The two later would meet and become close friends for the rest of their lives until they both died just a few months apart from one another in 2008. An enemy who saw an enemy and had mercy. I love that story. I love that story because, first of all, I really do think that the World War II generation was the greatest generation. But I love that story because it is a display of mercy that warms our hearts, isn't it? We read about an enemy that should have, would have had every right to shoot down the American plane and yet looked upon them, saw them as 
human beings who were just scrambling to stay alive and rather than shoot them down and kill them, not only let them go, but actually escorted them into safe space so that they could make it home and once again see their families. It's a moving display of mercy. Mercy is a universal language that is appreciated by all, isn't it? When you hear a story about someone who is in a tough spot and your heart goes out to that person because you have also been in a tough spot, probably not in a plane with massive holes in it, but you've also been in a tough spot and, and most likely at some point in your life someone has sort of thrown you a bone and you appreciated it, didn't you? Mercy is kindness shown to someone who did not deserve it. Why did Franz Stigler not shoot down the American plane that day? Because when he looked inside, he saw not just someone who wore the opposing side's uniform. He saw people. He saw people who were helpless People who were hopeless. People who were desperately scrambling just to stay alive. And his heart broke for them. He showed them mercy in a time when it was most needed. And as we look at this particular passage from Mark's Gospel, in the life of of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find a man who was helpless and hopeless. A man who cried out for mercy even in spite of the crowds who were telling him to shut up. He cried out for mercy and because his words entered the ears of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was mercy that he found that day. So what I want us to do this morning then is to look at this passage together and to see the mercy of Jesus Christ. The more I walk with Jesus and the more I pastor people who walk with Jesus, the more convinced I am of the simple reality that sometimes we don't need a to-do list in our Christianity. We need more Jesus in our Christianity. Sometimes, in fact, I would say all the time, the most significant thing that we can do in our walks with the Lord is to see Him. And never look away. To marvel at His character. To see His attributes on display and to be reminded that the, the mercy that Jesus showed a blind man nearly 2,000 years ago is the very same mercy He can show you and me today. So let's see this act of mercy together. I want to see it in two parts this morning. First of all, we'll see a man who needed mercy in verses 46-48. to 48. And then secondly, we'll see the King who gives mercy. So first of all, a man who needed mercy in verses 46 to 48. We read once again, and they came to Jericho. 
Let me set up the context for you a little bit so that you understand where we're at in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Obviously, we're in Mark chapter 10, and it begins surprisingly with Mark chapter 1. So there are a whole lot of things that have happened in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. There's a whole lot more things that will happen as this book goes up to 16 chapters. But so far, and what we need to know most significantly right now, at this point in the life and ministry of Jesus, is that He has set His face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He's been conducting most of his ministry in the northern area of Galilee. And very early on in his ministry, because he has provoked the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they have already sought to kill him. And they've been plotting behind the scenes, and they've done their best to set him up. But he keeps getting out of their traps. The profoundness of his wisdom is seen over and over again. When they think they've got him this time, he just somehow gets out of it. But now in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, he's been teaching his disciples about who he is and what he's come to do. And he's told them multiple times. And now most clearly he's told them that I am going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will give his life. And Mark has made it really clear the disciples had no idea what he was talking about. He, they knew, of course, what it meant for someone to give their life, but they had no comprehension for how this one, this Jesus, the one whom Peter has already confessed is the Christ, is the Messiah, is God's King who will give deliverance to His people. They have no comprehension of how that one, that powerful one, would ever be able to die. And so Jesus has surprised them with His tenacity to get to Jerusalem. They're now in Jericho. You probably remember the city of Jericho, right? Where Joshua fought the battle and the walls came tumbling down. Well, this Jericho was actually a different Jericho, a new Jericho, one that was built by the Hasmoneans and revitalized by Herod. Both of those cities were there, which probably explains if you read Luke's account, you read about Jesus coming into Jericho, and you read Mark's account, you read about Jesus leaving Jericho, and you scratch your head going, no wait, was He coming in or was He going? Well, He was doing both. He was leaving old Jericho, He was coming into new Jericho. Matthew tells you there are actually two blind men who were there begging that day, crying out for mercy, but Mark wants to do something specific. It's not that he doesn't want to acknowledge that there were two men, and it's certainly not that he didn't know there were two men. Mark got his gospel from Peter. Peter was there. He saw the whole thing. But as Mark tells his gospel, what he wants to do over and over again is not just tell you to believe in Jesus Christ, but he wants to show you what it looks like to believe in Jesus Christ. And so Mark zooms in on this one man named Bartimaeus, most likely a man whom after people read this Gospel could have went to and asked, Bartimaeus, is this really true? And he would have said, yeah, let me tell you, it was a crazy story. 
And so Jesus comes into, they're they're making their way up to Jerusalem. The Passover is about to happen. And you'll notice that not only did they, Jesus and the disciples, come to Jericho, but Mark continues to tell us in verse 46, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. So it's Jesus, it's the disciples, And it's the great crowd. Over and over again in the life of Jesus, especially in Mark, you see this great crowd. This was a crowd that followed Jesus because they saw what He could do. And some of them followed Him genuinely. But this particular crowd would have also been on the very same pilgrimage that Jesus was making. It was Passover time. It was time to make your way up to the city of Jerusalem so that you could be presented at the temple for the forgiveness of your sins and celebrate the most significant event of all of Israel's history, the great moment that marked the exodus from slavery in Egypt, the Passover. And so tens of thousands of people descended, or ascended rather, up to the city of Jerusalem. And so that's the setting that Jesus and His disciples are in. There's people packing the road on their way up to Jerusalem. So as Mark zooms out to show you the big picture, he then very quickly zooms the camera in to show you one particular man. Bartimaeus. And Mark not just tells us his name, Bartimaeus, which actually means the son of Timaeus, but he tells you about Bartimaeus. He tells you that Bartimaeus was a blind beggar. He really didn't have to use that second adjective to describe who he was. He could have just said that he was a blind man. Because in those days, if you were blind, then it was automatic that you would be a beggar. Christianity had not influenced the world in such a way that our hearts go out to those with disabilities, and so there were no such thing like disability acts or social security. Instead, people who were blind, who could not work, or or perhaps people who were deaf, or people who had amputations, they couldn't provide for themselves. And if they had a family that was wealthy enough to provide for them, then they could contribute in some meaningful way into that family. But apparently, that was not the case for Bartimaeus. And so, Mark tells us that his occupation was that he was a beggar. And this particular time of year was the best time for beggars. Because it was the Passover. So tens of thousands of people are coming through the city where Bartimaeus lives. And and for us, we see people begging and we tend to think, man, why don't you just go get a job, buddy? Which is another conversation to have. But for them, for Jews, almsgiving, giving to the poor, was one of the hallmarks of their religious faith. If you did not give to the poor in Judaism, you were not a godly person. And so probably what's happening here is Bartimaeus knows what time of year it is and knows that this is the time for him to get what would most likely last him weeks, perhaps even months of an income so that he could just do the simple things like eat and stay alive. 
And so Bartimaeus posts up there, the blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. He was sitting by the roadside. You can see it, can't you? All the people walking along the road and this blind man sitting here begging so that he can stay alive. And verse 47 tells us, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He can't see, of course, that it's Jesus of Nazareth, though he would have never even seen. Nobody in this city would have seen Jesus yet. But he heard. He he probably heard the hubbub. He heard the crowds. He heard people talking about Jesus. Not just any old Jesus, because that was a common name in those days, but particularly Jesus the Nazarene. The Jesus that all Israel was talking about. And they'd be talking about you too if you could raise people from the dead, right? If you could cast out demons, they'd be talking about you. If you could heal people, they'd be talking about you. And in particular for Jesus, the thing that Mark wants us to know, even more so than the miracles that He did, Mark wants us to know all the way back in chapter 1 that what struck the people of Israel most about Him was His teaching. Over and over again, they would say things like, we've never heard anyone teach with this type of authority. And so, the whole country knew about Jesus. And now He comes. And they must have been talking, it's Jesus, can you believe He's finally here? And Bartimaeus hears it. And what does he do in response to hearing about Jesus? Picture the crowds. The road is crowded. What does he do? He cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me! Now I want you to notice what he calls Jesus. He calls him by his name, Jesus, but then he calls him by a title that has not yet been used in the Gospel of Mark. It's used many times in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's a title that particularly points to King David and to the son of King David. Son of David. It's a title that reminds us and shows the people that were there who Jesus really is. It's a title that points to the true King of Israel. Now this was, the, this was the buzz already. People were saying that they thought this was the one. Hence the, the reason why the crowds followed Him. Peter has already confessed that He's the Christ. But I want you to notice something as Jesus comes into Israel, or into Jerusalem. Look at, down at chapter 11. Just a few verses down from where you are now. Notice what happens when Jesus comes into the city and it tells you the significance of what Bartimaeus meant when he said, Jesus, Son of David. It it wasn't just a phrase he was using. It meant something. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, why are you do- what are you doing untying the colt? 
And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Do you see the significance of the name that Bartimaeus calls Jesus? The son of David? There's no question in Bartimaeus' mind who Jesus is. He is God's King who has come to save His people. Israel knew this from the covenant that God had made with David, that David would have a son to sit on the throne of Israel forever. And that was immediately fulfilled in Solomon, but Solomon was a sinner and could never fill the shoes of that covenant. However, Jesus comes on the scene and He's doing all the things that the prophet Isaiah said the Messiah would do. He's causing the deaf to hear. He's causing the blind to see. Bartimaeus was not the first blind man to restore, to have his sight restored. He's preaching the Word of God. He's setting the captive free. And Bartimaeus knows that the one he's been looking for, as he has been examining the Scriptures, not with his eyes, but with his ears, is finally here. And he knows this is his one shot to get to Jesus. He can't see Him. He can only hear Him. And he can hear the the roar of the crowd around Him. And so he cries out to Him, Jesus, Son of David. And notice specifically what He asked for Him. He doesn't say right away, heal me, but what does He ask for? Mercy. Mercy. Now, everybody else, including the disciples that day, were following Jesus. Now, now Jesus would fix them. But they were following Jesus, not for His mercy, but for His power. That's why that crowd laid out the palm branches and laid out their cloaks so that the donkey He was riding on would not touch the ground because they viewed Him as their King. And as their King, they knew He would be the one to deliver them from captivity, most especially in this setting, the oppression of the Roman Empire that was so brutal and such a tight squeeze on them. They were so concerned with the kingdom of David that they missed what Jesus had come for initially. They were looking for the power, but notice what Bartimaeus was looking for. Mercy. You see, Bartimaeus, though he was blind, could see better than anyone else in the crowd that day. He knew that when he thought about God, the true God, not the God that he's made in his head and boxed in, but he knew that when he thought about the true God, the very first thing he would think about was his mercy. So you think back to the way that God revealed Himself to Moses when Moses begged Him in Exodus 34, show me your glory. 
And God says, I can't show you my glory because you'll die. But what I will do for you is tuck you into this, the cleft of this rock and I will put my hand over you and I will pass by and I will let you see what remains after I pass by. And so God shows him his glory, but in that passage, what's most significant is not what Moses sees, but what Moses hears. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. God reveals His glory to Moses and His glory is tied most directly to number one, His name, Yahweh, and number two, His character that He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, yet He will by no means pardon the guilty. When Bartimaeus thinks of God, what he thinks of is mercy. So let me ask you today, when you think of God, what do you think? What do you think of? What comes to mind when you think of God? Because my concern, dear friend, is that you've got a misconstrued view of God. My concern is that when you think of God, you think of something like the the old man who sits in his lawn chair and guards his grass. No offense if you do that. (laughs) You could talk to Rob later about that. My concern is that you see God as the man, the old man with the scowl on his face that just wants to do his best to ruin your life. And you know he's holy, and you kind of know what that means. You know he's righteous, but the, most, the, the thing that concerns you most about God, the biggest view, the biggest picture of God that you have is his wrath and his justice. And so you live your life as though it's a constant a constant fear to not step on the landmine of God's wrath, but you're, you're just trying to desperately navigate and not get on God's bad side. A friend, I want to blow that view of God up because the Bible wants to blow that view of God up. Yes, God is wrathful. Yes, God is just. God will punish those who are guilty, but you know what else He will do? He will pardon the one who comes to Him and seeks that pardon. He will look on from His high estate. He will look upon the lowly. He cares for the afflicted. He binds up the wounds of those who have been hurt. What's the difference between the one who gets God's mercy and who gets God's wrath? It's the way that you respond to Jesus. It's the way that you respond to Jesus. So then let me ask you, have you come to Jesus 
for that mercy? Because He's full of it. Hear me say this, and don't you ever forget it. He is more full of mercy than you are full of sin. What what do the Scriptures say in Romans 5? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Now if you refuse to confess that sin to Him, then you'll neglect His mercy and you won't find it. But it won't be because He didn't offer it to you. It won't be because Jesus has not stood with His arms open wide to you telling you to come to Him if you are weary. Telling you that you will find rest in Him. Telling you to come and enjoy life and be satisfied with reality. So have you come to Him? And if you have come to Him, are you still coming to Him? Because is there ever a point in your life where you stop needing mercy? Isn't everything from God mercy? So how do you view God? Because the true God is full of mercy. So this, merciful, this, this man who needed mercy cries out for mercy, but then the story continues and notice how the crowd responds to him in verse 28. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Can you imagine that? I mean, let's just call a timeout. You've seen the picture, right? The crowd is walking. There's a blind man named Bartimaeus who's sitting on the side of the road who's begging so that he can sustain his life. He's crying out to Jesus, the one who everybody knows can heal him. And he's crying out for mercy, which should move your heart in some way, right? But the crowd says to him instead, shut up. Knock it off. What's wrong with you? Don't you know who this is? He's too important for you. He doesn't have time for you, blind man. Get lost. This is just a free point of application, but I think that sometimes we probably identify too much with the merciless crowd than the merciful Savior. So the crowd rebukes Him, but notice, notice the faith that Bartimaeus displays here. Is Bartimaeus deterred by the crowd's rebukes? Nope. Nope, he is not. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me! Don't you love the dogged determination to get to Jesus? Bartimaeus is saying, listen, I don't care what you say. I'm talking to Jesus. I'm crying out to the one who has mercy. Try to quiet me down all you want, but you can take the world. Just give me Jesus. He cries out. He shows this resiliency, a resiliency that would prove to be genuine faith. And notice what verse 49 says. And Jesus stopped this moves us away from the man who needed mercy and moves us now secondly into the king who gives mercy the king 
who gives mercy. Bartimaeus has cried out for it, and now Jesus stopped. What stops Jesus in his tracks? When desperate people cry out to him. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. I love this. I love this first of all because it's a little bit confusing on whether or not this is a, this is a sort of flex of Jesus' divine nature or in his humanity he just happened to hear the words that Bartimaeus was saying. Either way, you've been in a crowd before, right? A sports game, the fair, a concert. You know what it's like to be surrounded by a group of people that are making a lot of noise. And you probably know what it's like. Let's say you're meeting some family or some friends at the fair. You see them across the way and you try to yell for them. Do they hear you the first time typically? Not usually. So you yell louder and you just try to get your voice through the noise of the crowd. And somehow Bartimaeus' voice gets through the noise of the crowd and Jesus just stops. Do you remember where I said Jesus was going? Jerusalem. Do you remember why I said Jesus was going there? To die. Do you remember the determination I told you with which Jesus had had taken upon Himself? Luke says it like this. He set His face like flint. Jesus was bound and determined to get to Jerusalem and nothing would stop Him. Nothing that is. Except the cry of the desperate. Who just said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Friend, do you know? Do you know that that very same thing stops Jesus now? Do you know that if you were to cry out to Jesus for his mercy, you would get his ear? We see the heart of the Savior reflected. He says to stop, and then he says to call him. But notice, who does he say to call him to? He tells the crowd to call the man who was calling him. Which I think is pretty sweet. Remember what this crowd had just done? They just told Bartimaeus to shut up. They rebuked him, which is a strong word. Stop, Bartimaeus. Knock it off. And now Jesus says, hey, you, guy who just said shut up, you call him. Which just makes him eat humble pie, doesn't it? Now, we don't get the details of it, but I love the Savior's heart that he makes those who were once oppressing the blind man, he makes them do his bidding. Call him. And so they flip the script pretty quickly. They say to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And verse 50 says exactly what Bartimaeus did. A man who was blind, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now, if you've been blind for a while, you learn how to navigate your way through life. But notice the words, the action words that Mark is using here. He wants you to have this picture in mind. Even though Bartimaeus can't see, he's not letting his lack of vision detour him from getting to Jesus. He jumps up, he throws off his cloak, which probably for Bartimaeus was the most valuable possession he had. Not only would it keep him warm at night, most likely it was the thing that he would lay out to collect his money. You've seen a street performer playing a guitar before? 
What do they do with their guitar case? They open it up so that you can put money in it if you so, if you so choose. Bartimaeus throws off his cloak. I don't need this anymore. And he follows Jesus. He comes to Jesus. In verse 51, Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Why does he ask him, what do you want me to do for you? Can Jesus not see what this man most likely wants him to do for him? Does Jesus not in his omniscience know what this man wants him to do for him? Of course he can see and of course he knows, but what Jesus is doing is displaying how much he loves to hear our prayers. What do you want me to do for you? He's drawing this man's request out. He's he's giving the man an avenue to display his heart. He's searching out what he most desires in life. And this is an interesting question because this question actually appeared a little bit previous to this particular instance. In fact, look back to verse 36 of chapter 10. James and John, actually let me start in verse 35. James and John with their surprising request for glory. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Warning, warning. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? You see that same question? Whenever you see a phrase repeated like that, especially just a few verses apart from itself, it's important. So Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? He's giving them an avenue to display what their heart longs for the most. And what do they long for? Verse 37, And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. Man, that's bold. Jesus, we know you're the King. We know you're the Messiah. We know you're going to have glory. And so... We want to sit at your right hand, at your left hand when you get on your throne because we want power and we want position in your kingdom. And yet the blind man, when Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Drop back down into our story. Verse 51, And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. You see the contrast there? The disciples want glory and power and fame. Bartimaeus, he just wants to be made whole. Lord, I want to see. And he actually uses a a word that's more specific than rabbi, rabboni, which could probably mean master or even Lord. It's another reflection that Bartimaeus knows who he's talking to. And he says, I just want to be made the way that you intended to make all things. Give me my sight. Let me see. And Jesus replies in verse 52, Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. What was it that led Jesus to heal Bartimaeus? 
It wasn't his request as sweet as it was. It was the fact that Bartimaeus was displaying faith in Jesus. He called him the son of David, which means he knew who he was. When the crowd tried to rebuke him, he wouldn't stop. He kept crying out all the more because he knew that Jesus has mercy. And when Jesus says, call him, they say, take heart, get up, he's calling you. He throws off his only worldly possession and he runs to Jesus. He springs up and he goes. There's all kinds of questions that we wrestle with, debates about genuine faith today, isn't there? This is genuine faith. Following Jesus, that's genuine faith. And here's the, here's the reality. Just like the disciples, you're going to blow it. But did Jesus kick out the disciples when they say, we want power and we want glory? No. He was patient with them. He was merciful towards them. And so Jesus says, it's, it's your faith, Bartimaeus. It's your faith that's made you well. And Mark tells us, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. There's another word play here that I want to draw your attention to. Notice at the beginning of verse 52, Jesus says, go your way, Right? And then notice how it ends. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. That's another way we know that this was genuine faith. Because Bartimaeus' way was Jesus' way. This is Mark telling us that Bartimaeus became a disciple of Jesus. This is what discipleship is. Jesus, I will follow You on the way no matter where You take me, no matter what it costs me, no matter what happens to me, no matter what the crowd tries to tell me to do or force me to do, Jesus, I will follow You because I know who You are and I trust You. And when you know that His heart is merciful, then doesn't that bolster your trust all the more? Because you know that the complexities of life in a fallen world throw so much at you, yet even in spite of all of that, you can trust that Jesus Christ is merciful to you. How do we know? How do we know that this was not just Jesus having a good day? I mean, I'm kind of putting words in your mouth here, but how do you know you can believe me when I tell you that Jesus is merciful to you? You can know, friends, because after this, Jesus kept walking. That although Jesus stopped His mission to die for the cry from a desperate man who needed mercy, He continued that mission all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to the bogus trial, all the way to the cross, all the way to the tomb, all the way up out of the tomb in resurrection, and all the way to the Father's right hand in glory. That's how. Don't take it from me. 
Take it from the one who died for your sins and rose again to give you new life. And so I want to just give you two specific points of application. I hope you've gotten some already. Number one, I want you to see Jesus' mercy. Not just see it here, but see it everywhere. And see it every day. When we take our eyes off of Jesus and we take our eyes off of His mercy, we will always end up in trouble, won't we? Our view of Jesus will shrink. We'll get bored with Him. We'll feel as though we don't really need Him or we've got Him figured out. But when we see His mercy over and over again, we will be in awe of who He is. And that's the place to live. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2, 14-18, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. In other words, Jesus became flesh and blood, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Anybody afraid to die here? Jesus can deliver you. He goes on, For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. In other words, He had to become a human being while simultaneously being God in every way so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. So see the mercy of Jesus. And secondly, seek the mercy of Jesus. Seek the mercy of Jesus. What did we just read? He is able to help you when you're tempted because He was tempted, yet He did not succumb to that temptation, but beat it. Isn't it so often the case when you go through something really hard that you're tempted to think to yourself, no one understands. No one gets it. I know they mean well, or at least maybe sometimes they mean well, but they just don't understand. They don't know what I'm feeling. They don't know what it's like to go through what I'm going through. Friends, you're probably right. But I'll tell you, you're dead wrong at the same time. Other human beings may not know what you're going through, but there is one in heaven, seated on a throne of grace, who knows exactly what you're going through. Who is positioned to give you mercy if you would just seek Him for it. He knows. And what's more, He cares. And so again, Hebrews 4, 15-16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See Jesus and His mercy. And seek Jesus and His mercy. Earlier we sang one of my favorite songs. 
His mercy is more. Let me remind you of a few lines of that song as we close. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His, what is it? Mercy Mercy is more. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your love. Thank You for Your care for us. We do not deserve it. And yet, You've given it to us. And not only did You give it to us so long ago when You went to the cross and paid for our sins, but as our merciful High Priest, You continue to give it to us. Lord, I pray that we would see You in Your mercy. And I pray that we would seek You in Your mercy. I pray for those perhaps who have never sought Your mercy before, that they would understand that if they would just call to You now, You would stop for them. You would hear them. You would give Your mercy to them. And I pray for those of us who have sought Your mercy and salvation, those of us who are in Christ. Lord, we confess it's so easy to forget about Your mercy. Remind us again of Your mercy. We pray, O Lord, that You would open our eyes because we want to see Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.